Testing, testing, one, two, three. three, 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 three. We're going back to the 90s, back in black and back to the beginning. So welcome back to Backlit Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe, that's Z-O or Z-O if you're outside of the United States, taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. You know, I've kind of wondered why it was only the United States, it seems, that says Z instead of Z. I think it's because of that song. Because Z has to rhyme with B, C, D, E, G, and L, M, N, O, P, and T, U, V. It goes along great. It just rolls off the tongue when you say W, X, Y, Z. So I think that's the reason. That's, that's why we say Z instead of Z. It's the 103rd episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s. If you like this show, then please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser.com, or your favorite podcast app. And I have an announcement. We were supposed to have a special guest, the wonderful Wayne McCarty from the Florida Man, oh, I'm sorry, the Florida Men or Florida Man podcast to talk about the 1983 classic film, Scarface. But Wayne had an issue that he had to deal with, so we'll reschedule that for a later date. In the meantime, I encourage all of you to listen to Florida Men on Florida Man as it's an absolute blast. And now, let's go to the opening credits so that we can talk about the movie that I did do today. So today's movie is Blade, based on the little-known Marvel Comics character. Blade is a half-vampire, half-human, sworn to rid the world of vampires one nest at a time. Having all of the vampire strengths and none of their weaknesses, Blade is joined by his mentor, Whistler, and a hematologist, Dr. Jensen. In his effort to track down and eliminate a vampire leader in New York City named Deacon Frost, they discover that Frost has plans that may be catastrophic for the entire world. Blade was released August 21st, 1998, produced by Amin Ra Films, Imaginary Forces, and Marvel Enterprises. It grossed over $70 million in the U.S. and Canada and over $131 million worldwide on a reported estimated $45 million budget. And it had mixed reviews, but it was a modest hit. It, it basically, show, it was way better, I think, than anybody had ever expected. And it showed that superhero movies, that genre, had some cojones because it, it was on the back foot. This movie was released a year after, I think it was uh, one of the X-Men movies or basically one of the movies that, one of the superhero movies that didn't do well or didn't do as expected. And uh, it, it was a movie that suggested that, you know, superhero movies was a fad that was going to go away. But Blade proved that it was not going to go away. And I think it was helped by, like, if you look at Blade, and, and Blade is really is an obscure character for those who don't read comics, then a lot of people just thought it was just a regular vampire action movie. And not know that it uh, Blade was actually a comic book character, much like uh, 
another movie that I really like that was based on a comic called Road to Perdition that stars Tom Hanks, where uh, that, mo that movie was actually based on a comic. And Tom, Hank Tom Hanks plays an assassin named the Archangel. And I just love the concept that, that Tom Hanks plays an assassin in the name of the assassin, or the code name, rather, is Archangel. Is it Archangel, is it, or is it Angel of Death? I can't. I can't remember, but uh, I guess, I guess y'all can go look that up. Anyway, Blade was star Blade Blade stars Wesley Snipes as Blade slash Eric Brooks. He's also been in the classic White Men Can't Jump, which I hear is being remade, and I've seen the trailer. And here's the thing: I, I'm an old man, so I'm not I'm not excited about most remakes, uh, and I can tell that this remake is is made for the younger generation. Just the same way I'm not excited about the remake of House Party, even though it, it kind of looks uh, charming. Uh, it, it looks charming, and I can see where they're going with it, but I, I'm not overly excited about it. But that's because I'm clinging to the classics that I grew up that that I grew up with, and I'm sure that people who saw uh, uh, well. Like I'm trying to think of like the Italian job, that remake. I'm, I'm pretty sure that people love the original version of the Italian job or Ocean's Eleven, that remake with George Clooney. I'm pretty sure that people who saw the original Ocean's Eleven really love. I think that's what Frank Sinatra really loved that movie. So Wesley Snipes uh, has recently appeared in Dolomite Is My Name, and he's he's outstanding in that movie. And. You'll be able to hear him soon as he's voicing a character on Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur animated series. So he's he's keeping busy. Up next is Stefan Dorf. He plays Deacon Frost. You may have seen him in Immortals or Felon or a little movie called Somewhere. Up next is Chris Christopherson. He plays Abraham Whistler. You may have seen him in Payback from 1999, A Star is Born from 1976, and he's also been in, among his expansive film credits, he's also been in, he's just not that into you. Next is Inbushe Wright. She played Dr. Karen Jensen. She's also been in Dead Presidents, Zebrahead, and Fresh. Sadly, she hasn't been in that many movies. She sort of quit acting early in her career after the tragic death of her father. But I think she's starting to make like really small appearances. I think she was in a, a film as recently as 2018. But there was a huge gap between her last movie, I think that came out in 2006, and, and uh, the movie that she appeared in in 2018. Or at least she was credited in appearing in that movie. Donald Logue played Peter Quinn. He's also been in Zodiac, The Patriot, and I know him from his role in the TV series called Gotham, where he played Harvey Bullock. Udo Kier played Dragonetti. He's also been in Swan Song, Bukaru, and Downsizing. And I hear that he's he plays vampires rather frequently. Arlie Jover plays Mercury. She's also been in Axalto Overkill, 
a permanent patient, and the girl with the dragon tattoo. And then we have Tracy Lord. She plays Raquel. She's uh, she actually she seems to have a higher bidding than than her appearance would suggest. She's only she's only in like the first few minutes of the film. The uh, very first scene up the very first scene where um, in Blades first battle. She's pretty much the first uh, named actor that that you see when the movie opens, and well, actually after the cold open, and then uh, after the cold open and the the credits, and then she's uh, the next main actor that you see. So she's not in the movie very long, but she's notable because she was a former adult actress appearing in adult films, and she wanted to transition into regular TV and movies and so this is one of her earlier projects appearing in this movie and they the, it was kind of a big deal like the press made a big deal out of her being in this movie being that she was a former adult actress basically trying to get out of that business and her earliest major role well her earliest role in the major movie was uh crybaby she's also appeared in excision and Zack and Miri make a porno. Kevin Patrick Walls played Officer Krieger. You may have seen him in Scream or Soul Keeper. He has not had a, a lot of uh, movie or TV appearances. Tim Gwenny plays Curtis Webb. You may have seen him in Iron Man or 99 Homes. The very notable actor, Sana Latham, played Vanessa Brooks. You may have seen her in Aliens vs. Predator, Love and Basketball, and a bunch of TV and movie projects that she has made an appearance in, or maybe you heard her voice in the animation that she voiced in. She she has been steady acting for a long time. Like every year, you see her in something. And finally, we have Eric Edwards. He played Pearl. He's also been in Candyman. And the Little Rascals from 1994. This movie was directed by Stephen Norrington. Uh, I think he has a background in special effects, and I would explain why the special effects in Blade look so good. Um, but he's not not that great of a director. So he's he also directed The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Last Minute, and Death Machine. Now I haven't. I don't know about. The last two movies that I just mentioned, but along with Blade, these are the only movies that he directed. After the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, they basically uh, that was basically the end of his directorial career. So uh, enough said about Mr. Norrington. Let's move along to the writer. This movie was written by David S. Goyer. He's also written for The Man of Steel and much of the Snyderverse. He also wrote the Christopher Nolan Batman series and a, a little film called Dark City. I wish I could uh, talk about that movie on the show, but I never seen Dark City. I didn't see it when it came out and and I just never got around to seeing it. But it, it, defi- it was definitely a movie that was influenced by The Matrix. And it, it's also something that, that I've been wanting to see. The music was by Mark Isham. He has 194 composer credits to his name. 
the music in this film has an electronic uh kind of grungy is it grungy what's the head banging it's head banging music it's it's absolutely awesome <laughs> and uh he's also composed music for Judas and the Black Messiah Crash and the Accountant so that's it for the opening credits. And if you're enjoying the show, remember that you can get T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, jerseys, and more at our website at backlitcinema.com slash shop. After this musical cue, we will come back to talk about our favorite parts. All right, now we're back. This is a segment where we talk about our favorite parts, or I should say my favorite parts of Blade. So I ended up watching this by myself. I didn't watch it with Zachary because Zachary had already seen Blade. So, you know, the 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 onus of this podcast is of trying to watch the movies that he hadn't seen yet and get him to watch those movies. I'm annoying him with watching these old movies with their old and outdated special effects and filming techniques and whatnot. But um, he's already seen it. I know that he loves this movie. So I just watched it by myself. So I'm just going to talk about my favorite part. So first, before I get to the actual like scenes of the movie, there there's something about this movie that had kind of opened my eyes to, to certain versions of fiction. So I want to get started with how Blade looks in the film compared to how he looked in the comics. So when he first debuted in the comics, he had on rather colorful, loose-fitting clothes. And then as the character was further developed, he is more of a he's more of a dude that kind of just wears black clothing and and uh like a black leather coat. Or later on, after the movie came out, you'd more often see him in a black leather trench coat. And he most often just had swords and knives to, or wooden stakes to fight vampires. And the movie and the movie is different because the movie has a different mythology when they deal with the vampires. So uh, along with swords and knives, he also has lots of guns. He has a shotgun. He has a submachine gun. And... Uh, and then a lot of gadgets. So he's different in that way. And in the comics, he, he, I guess in earlier versions, he had an Afro because it was like in the 60s and 70s. I think I forgot when he debuted. I think he debuted in like the early 60s, the late 60s. So he had an Afro. Or even if he debuted in the 70s, he would have had an Afro. But then later on, as they updated him to the the late eighties and early nineties, then he would have a jury curl. He had jury curl for a long time. And if you don't know what a jury curl is, it's kind of, it's basically really curly wet hair. So, uh, black people would put some chemicals in their hair and it would be curly. It was, it was always wet. So this was, this was a look that was real popular back in those days. I myself have never really had a jury curl. Uh, it, this is something that you really had to go to. Uh, well, you didn't have to go to like a beauty salon to do it, but it was best done in, in a beauty salon or a barbershop. 
Oh, uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson scored a Jerry Curl. So just kind of look up images of Michael Jackson when uh, at the time that he was doing his Thriller album. That's peak Jerry Curl at the time of the Thriller album. That's that's the ultimate Jerry Curl if you want to see what I'm talking about. So one of the things that I really liked about Blade in the movie was his hairstyle. So in the movie, it can be described as a filly or uh, like a military haircut. It was sort of like a military haircut, but then in the back of his head, it was kind of tapered in the back and it blended with a tattoo that was on the back of his neck. And I thought that was that was pretty awesome. It was a pretty awesome addition, adding a tattoo that kind of blended with the, the back of his head. It was it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing that they did. Uh, shout out to the art department or whoever had come up with that. Also, uh, it's one of the things that the movie added that wasn't in the uh, comics is that Blade wore body armor. So he had body armor and he had a long leather jacket and uh, black pants. And that was, and then obviously straps and stuff for his weapons and whatnot. And that was his look. And that was one of the, that was a great thing about this movie. It made him look so cool. And it, it was just like one of the coolest characters that you can see on film. And that was, it was just a great how they transformed him into such a, a cool and capable character. So another thing I want to talk about is vampire lore. Vampire lore is very different in this movie than it is in other versions of vampire lore. One of the things that this movie did for me is kind of opened up to the realization that different mythologies or different stories about vampires are going to have their own rules, their own mythologies, their own way of telling the story about vampires. So there's the classical stories about vampires where vampires are supernatural creatures. They're able to transform into different animals or they, they can transform into mists. Sometimes they can fly. Sometimes they uh, can hypnotize people or charm people. And they tend to be vulnerable to sunlight. Like, depending on the lore, either they'll burst into flame immediately when exposed to the sun, or it, it might happen more slowly. And some versions, they uh, the older they get, the, mo the more resistant they are to the sun. But they're almost always extremely vulnerable to sunlight. And most stories about vampire follow that particular trope. The other thing is that vampires obviously drink blood. Uh, I've not seen a deviation of this particular trope. I mean, it doesn't make sense to have a vampire story if the vampires don't actually drink blood. Sometimes they, they drink and eat the flesh, but mostly, mostly it's just them drinking the blood. Uh, so there's no deviation there. Um, the other The other thing about vampires is that Supernatural vampires are usually vulnerable to religious artifacts like crosses. It's almost always crosses because vampires are told from a Christian perspective. So it's almost always crosses or holy water that is water that's been blessed by a priest. And they're also vulnerable to garlic. So, um, and usually they have supernatural strength and speed sometimes they they move like lightning fast and sometimes they just a little bit faster than a regular person and 
because most vampires and most lore are supernatural, then they tend to live forever or they, they, they're immortal until they are killed by a vampire hunter or they accidentally, they're, they're somehow exposed to sunlight. It's actually, or they're killed by another vampire, but you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it goes on and on. So in this movie, in Blade, it's a little bit different. In this movie, the vampires are biological in nature. Vampires are born, they live for a very long time, but they're not immortal. They age more slowly than humans. They even have a kind of full scientific name, Hominus Nocturnus. So they also are still vulnerable to sunlight. They still drink blood, but because they're biological, they can kind of put on sunscreen and wear dark, wait, not even wear sunglasses. They can just put on sunscreen and at least for a little while be outside in the daytime. There are two kinds of vampires in this lore. So you have the pure bloods, the vampires that are born vampires, and the half-breeds. These are people or uh, vampires who were once people. In this version, vampires can still turn ordinary people into vampires, which is common throughout most vampire lore. They're not vulnerable to... Uh, well, they're, they're still allergic to garlic, but it it might not necessarily kill them, I guess. Uh, well, I don't know. that One vampire had garlic squirted directly into her mouth, and see, she immediately... Her, her face immediately, uh, what do you call it, expanded and her head exploded. So yeah, I guess they're pretty vulnerable to garlic. And because they're biological, you can develop other serums that, like if you can develop the serum that adversely affect this particular blood structure of vampire blood, then that's a way of killing vampires also. Because they're biological beings and not supernatural in this movie they don't they're not they don't succumb they don't succumb to the normal things that vampires usually succumb to so they don't they don't succumb to crosses they don't succumb to holy water or any religious tools also they don't have the trope of vampires not being able to go into homes without first being invited they they don't have allegiance to like a supernatural being uh, such as the devil. They they do have their own religion, but it's not like they're, because they're not bound to Christianity or other known religions, they're, they're not the spawn of Satan or some or similar supernatural being, but they do have, as I said, their own religion. One of the things that is similar with the blade vampires and vampires from some other lords is that they do have people that will run errands for them in the daytime. In Blade, they're called familiars. I know in some other lore that they may be called Renfields. So in Blade, the familiars are people who give their allegiance to vampires and they willingly allow vampires to feed off of them. And they'll run errands for vampires and in the hopes that the vampire that they're owing their allegiance to will someday turn them into vampires as well. 
also they they don't have like a glamour in this movie they they at least haven't seen it so they have they don't hypnotize people or have a supernatural ability to offer suggestions to people so that wraps up how a lot of the lore works in uh blade so as for blade himself he is unique in that he wasn't turned into a vampire the same way uh well he's not a vampire he's only half a vampire he's still half human but his being or well, he had came to be how he came to be in a unique way so in this movie a vampire can turn a human by sucking on their feeding off of them and but not killing them like usually a vampire will feed off of a person until they fully drain that person of the person's blood or they'll feed off of them a little bit and then just like rip the person's head off or something like that they usually like to kill the people that they feed off of because if they don't then that person will slowly over time become a vampire blade on the other hand was not attacked himself but his mother was attacked so i'm not sure of the timetable when blade's mother was attacked but it was very close to before blade was born blade's mother should have already started the process of turning into a vampire and at the same time turning blade as a fetus into a vampire but because I guess because he was a fetus, it it didn't the transformation kind of got messed up. So he was when he was born, he was born half human and half vampire. So as uh, they call him a daywalker, that's their word for what Blade is. And as a daywalker, he has the supernatural, or I don't know if I should call it supernatural, since the vampires in this movie are not supernatural beings, but they have a greater strength than humans. So Blade has that greater strength, that greater endurance. The vampires in this movie also have a healing factor. They can heal from almost any wound that's not decapitation. So they can uh, heal from having their limbs chopped off. They can heal from being badly burned. They can heal from almost anything. And so Blade also has this characteristic. Blade also has the same thirst for blood that vampires have in fact when he was growing up he would feed off of the homeless people but because he's not a vampire himself they the people that he feed off of don't turn to vampires but he still has a thirst for blood and food does nothing for him so when he's found by his mentor his mentor instead of killing him they developed a serum that he could use in place of blood that would keep him alive so he doesn't have to hunt people like other vampires so in this movie another difference that vampires have uh, from that is different from other vampire lore is that in this movie they're vulnerable to silver so blades has a well blades blade has a sword he has swords and knives and they're all either made of or coated with or they're edged with silver he uses bullets that are either coated with or edged with silver. He has stakes that are pure silver. He actually doesn't use wood at all. And so this allows him to 
kill vampires rather quickly and efficiently. So at, while I enjoyed this when I first watched it, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because when I see vampires, I expect, like when you're doing a vampire movie, originally I expected all the movies to follow the same vampire lore, to, to use all the same tropes. But as it turns out, I found that, you know, through watching a bunch of vampire movies that you, or, or reading a bunch of vampire stories that you can have different vampire lore. You can have basically what authors or storytellers do is that they take what they like from the classic vampire lore and, and they change it in their own ways. And I, I find a lot of it to be enjoyable. In this movie, when Blade cuts a vampire, uh, they almost immediately turn to ash. So he can shoot if he shoots at them with his silver bullets, they they start burning and ashing up. If he cuts them with their blade, they'll start burning and ashing up. They're extremely vulnerable to silver. <laughs> and uh, obviously, if he... Strangely enough, like, he can stake a vampire and it not immediately kill him. So maybe the stakes aren't made of silver. So that was the, <laughs> that was the one thing that was... Uh, maybe you could call that a plot hole because they're... There was a vampire that got staked and he didn't ash into silver, but most of the vampires that like he cut in half, they immediately ashed to silver. So, so there's that. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of they they're not consistent, I guess, in how Blade kills vampires because sometimes he could cut off their limbs with his blade and and they don't immediately die. So, um, and then sometimes the way he cuts them. I guess if he cuts them in half, then they'll ash away. But however they've decided to do this lore, it, it's all thrilling and exciting. It's like, I, I'm only thinking about it now. <laughs> now now that I'm talking about it on the show. But yeah, they, um, it's a little bit inconsistent, but still that's generally, the general concept is that he can, he can cut them and he can shoot them. And it, and it all looks fantastic. So this kind of leads me to the beginning of the film the very the very first thing you see is a code open where you basically see blade's mother and blade's birth one of the things i noted was that uh blade's mother had a jury curl in 1967 and i think that's way too early to have a jury curl <laughs> so um she's being rushed to the hospital she's she's having a troubled birth and when um when she finally gives birth, it looks like she's giving birth to a creepy newborn, or at least they're giving you the feeling that it's a creepy newborn. Um, but if you've been with your children when they got born, they they all look a little bit creepy when they first come out of the oven. It, they they do look, they do have a strange look about them. And then, and then after you clean them off and they they start crying, then they take on a more human appearance because they, they come out the wrong color and they're covered with blood and they, they're they strange looking. They got this cord that's attached to them. They, they're they almost alien, but as the hours go by, they, they take on a more human appearance. So at least maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my own experience. As I mentioned, uh, Tracy Lord's, uh, you know, after the credits, the first main character that you see and she's taking some dude to a rave so uh it's a bunch of techno music at the rave and people are dancing and it's like after she brings him there she kind of ditches him and now he's in a crowded 
rave party or a club, like, you know, just wandering around and bumming into people. It's like this place is absolutely packed with people. And then um, the sprinklers go off, but it's not water that comes out the sprinklers. It's it's some red substance. And the dude is like, what is this red stuff coming out the sprinklers? And he determines that it's blood and that it starts to freak out. And then all of the dances around him that, you know, this on this packed dance floor that he's been bumping into. Now, now they're all like hissing at him and, and gaping their mouths at him. And some of them seem to have like really large teeth. And then, you know... And then they start pushing them and knocking them down and and uh basically attacking them, but not in um not in a way that would cause any permanent damage, but but just is more like harassment the way they attacked them. And then the in the middle of the attack, the the sprinklers they stop, and then some dude walks in and he's wearing all black. And strangely enough, even though like the sprinklers don't stop all the way. It's like it's the dude is walking in and the sprinklers going off and, and then it stops. But even though the sprinklers were just on as the dude walked in, he is pristine in in the black clothes that he was wearing. He's totally there's not a drop of blood on him. And then, you know, people start saying, Oh man, that's him. That's the that's the daywalker, that's the daywalker, that's blade. And yeah, it's it's blade. I mean, it's like that's an amazing an amazing entrance. He just comes in, you know, uh, just like, just walk in almost like he's coming in for a stroll on the dance floor. And then obviously they all start attacking. I, I forgot if he starts shooting them or he starts punching them. I can't remember how it all started, but it's, it's an outstanding action sequence where there's a bunch of shooting and, and cutting with the blade and with his uh, sword and it's like he does in succession. Like first he'll like shoot him up, and then not really after he runs out of bullet. Just basically he's tired or bored of shooting them, and then he'll start cutting them with his blade, or you know engaging in hand to hand combat. Just he's just have he he seems like a guy just having a time of his life, eliminating vampires. And as he cuts them or shoots them, as I mentioned earlier, that the vampires ash up. Now the special effects in this movie. Obviously, it's aged a little bit, but at the time, it seemed was the word I'm looking for. It, it it seemed awesome at the time that this movie came out. But here's a, here's a word about special effects uh, from older movies. So there, are, I listen to a lot of shows, and a lot of shows they talk about special effects. They talk about how the special effects hadn't held up, like a special effects of like 1990 or 1996 or something like that from that movie hadn't held up and you can see the wires you can see where it looks like a cartoon or what have you and the thing about it is that it's not supposed to hold up like the only reason that we know that it doesn't hold up is because special effects have improved dramatically over the years like if you're talking about a movie that came out in 2022 then yeah that it's a valid criticism to say that this the the special effects aren't good, but we're talking about a movie from 1996. So of course, and, and most people, when they watch these old movies, these, when they're watching these old movies, they're watching them on 4k TVs or they're watching them on 40, uh, 1040 P TVs, or, you know, they're watching it in uh, a format where you can see every pristine details. These movies weren't meant to be seen this way. 
uh, I'm thinking about how directors they'll they'll go on TV and they'll talk about you need to see my movie, you need to see my movie at the movie theater. You can't watch this on TV. You got to watch the movie theater. Mostly they're concerned about frame rates or lighting or the sound that's coming from the TV. But I think also they're they're probably talking about how there are certain things that you can see on um, an ultra high definition TV that you can't see in a movie theater. So when you watch it at home, you, you can see all the things that they attempted to hide when you watched it in a movie theater. So like when you when you're watching a movie, yeah, these special effects and, and things like that, they're they're supposed to age. But um in Blade, they it ages pretty well. It's like it a lot of the things they happen so fast that you don't really notice it. He ashes a lot of vampires and you know, you see their flesh turns to ash and then the you know, their bones are exposed and you can kind of tell that the bones look a little cartoony. But like I said at the time and uh when it when this movie came out in the late nineties, it looked awesome. So the action and the fight choreography is absolutely outstanding. The fight scenes in this movie are top notch. So you have the raid bloodbath. And after uh, after he kills all the vampires, like there's, there's only like one human left, and Blade checks the back of his neck to make sure that he's just a human. The the uh, familiars that I mentioned earlier, they have a, a tattoo in the back of the neck, so that's what Blade is looking for. He's looking to see if this person is here because he owed his allegiance to a vampire, then he determines that the person is just a victim. So that's the end of the opening fight scene, and that opening fight scene is undefeated so there's one there's a, a few vampires get away like some some of the vampires fight but a lot of the vampires just run out and one of the vampires that he attacks is peter quinn played by donald Logue. peter quinn is like one of the main characters he's he's one of the guys that gets his arm cut off by blade i think his arm is cut off by the elbow or something like that but he's able to get away and no, he doesn't get away. That's the one that gets staked to the wall, but the stakes, even though the stakes are made of silver, the stakes don't ash him immediately. So he stakes to the wall. And this is a, this is a vampire that Blade has been chasing for a while. And he knows that this guy is a Lieutenant of the main vampire. He's after Deacon Frost. So he says that, you know, I've, I've tried to capture a I've tried to get you a lot of times, and maybe this time I'll burn you. So Blade burns this vampire as the vampire is staked to the wall. But then the police come in, so Blade can't really stay there to make sure the vampire burns to death. So he escapes through a hidden, uh, I, I guess it's a ventilation slab or something. Like, I can't remember. It's an opening near the ceiling. And so he escapes through there, and then this, at the ceiling kind of opens up at street level. So he escapes the police. He's not really trying to get caught up in that situation. He's just, it's a, bu it's a bunch of blood. There's blood everywhere. Uh, and so it's not, a, it's not a situation that he needs to be in. When he, when Blade leaves, Quinn is still on fire. So the police take a fire extinguisher and put him out. And they take, they decided that he's dead because he's not really acting like a living person. He's, uh, even though he was screaming when, <laughs> When they finally put him out, they determined that he was dead. So he probably faked like he was dead. 
They take him to the hospital. He wakes up in the hospital and immediately starts to feed on one of the, I guess you would call him a medical examiner or a coroner. Anyways, uh, this guy has most of his blood sucked out of him because Quinn is heavily damaged and hungry. And then it's two of them down there. So it's one coroner and then the hematologist, Dr. Karen Jensen. She's brought down there because the coroner wants her to see something and Apparently, they were previously dating or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he gets fed on. And she's in so much shock that she doesn't move. She's, like, watching this all go down. This dead body just jump up and start feeding on the coroner. And then he looks at her. And then he starts to chase after her. He catches her. He starts to feed on her. And then Blade appears out of nowhere and starts attacking Quinn again. This is basically a continuation of the fight scene that we had earlier in the movie. It was a clever way of extending that fight scene. But then the police basically interfere in the fight. They start shooting at everybody. Quinn is able to get away again. But now there's this victim on the floor. Blade decides to rescue the hematologist. So he picks her up and starts running away with her, running away from the police. But one of, one of the funniest, one of my favorite scenes happened in, in all of this. So like when the police first see Blade in his black suit and his body armor and all this blood around him, Quinn had basically gotten away. So with all this blood around him, the police assume that he has something to do with it. And they immediately open fire. And he looks up, the, he looks up at the police and says, motherfucker, are you out of your mind? I totally enjoyed it. Like he was indignant that the police would shoot at him, given the scene that they were in. And of course, uh, not only is he already heavy, heavily resistant, but he's also wearing body armor and he's also has uh, a rapid healing. So he's when he screams at them, the police actually run away. <laughs> so that was so funny. And so he continues to run because um, there are a bunch more police show up and he takes the doctor with him. He's basically carrying her. Then they end up on a roof. Uh, well, they, they end up at a, at a, at a window. They're at a very high uh, floor in the hospital. So, you know, obviously you, you don't want to jump out a high window. It's not something that blade could probably survive. And the doctor definitely would not. So he throws her to another rooftop where there's like a canvas and the canvas uh, prevents her, you know, uh, basically provides a soft landing for her. And then he himself jumps out the window all the way across the the street and lands on the same building. You can see this is to demonstrate how durable he is because falling from or jumping from a great height, you would expect a person to land on the feet and then roll, you know, to to take a lot of that energy away. So they're not putting all that force on their legs, but because he's super durable, he's able to take all that force. And the police continue to shoot at him from across the street from the hospital. And it's weird that they would shoot at both the suspect and the victim. You know, they're just shooting indiscriminately at this point. They had to have seen Blade carry her. So I don't know how they would mistake the woman as an accomplice when he was, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to think. And they, they're not. Well, I can see they're 
I can see why they would shoot at Blade because Blade was surrounded by blood. And he do he did have a lot of swords and knives and guns on him, so it is a little bit reasonable that they would shoot at him. But I I don't see why they would shoot at him and the doctor when the doctor could be a, a victim. But I guess they decided nope, she's an accomplice. She 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 can get it too. So another aspect I love about this film was Blade's car. Blade had an awesome car. I think I get to talk about that in the trivia. It's just a, a, a sweet looking early model sports muscle car. And it's, you know, all black, obviously, black inside and out. And then and then uh, his hideout is an abandoned factory. And so, you know, it's a place that nobody's going to show up. It's it's just awesome the way it's set up. I, I like the hideout and I like the uh, his car. And then obviously that's where you meet Whistler played by Chris Christopherson, is just, man, he's just, he's just great. He's just great in that movie. Uh, he walks, Whistler walks with a limp. I don't I don't know if that was Chris Christopherson's choice or that was the way the character was written, but he, you know, he's, it's like he's a, a beat up warrior and that's the way that Whistler is played. And it's, it's just, it's just all great. One of the things that I noticed is that I really, love the black representation in this movie it 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 just it it feels po- it feels positive it feel it feels like a positive spin or it's a a different take on how black people are usually portrayed especially in the 80s and 90s so i i love that about this movie another thing that i really love about this movie was the dialogue they, it had some fun, snappy dialogues. One of the things about how Blade is portrayed by Wesley Snipes is that if you watch a lot of Wesley Snipes films, he plays kind of a goofy character. It's like he's uh, loose and jive-talking and just kind of goofy sometimes, and which makes him, like, he kind of stands out when he's in comedies. And he's... Uh, he has a lot of fun quips when he's in action movies. So these, this dialogue in this movie, the, the script, they had a lot of fun lines. And some of the lines were taken right from the actors. So one of the lines that I really liked is that um, in one scene where, uh, like, they when, when they get the doctor, you know, Blade had rescued her. She's bitten by a vampire, so they figure that she's going to turn. But it's like a 50-50 chance whether or not she turns to a vampire. And Whistler tells her that, you know, you're going to... You, if you if you feel like you're going to change to a vampire, like if you, if you feel a thirst that you can't quench, then buy yourself a gun and, and take care of yourself. And if you don't take care of yourself, then there's an alternative that you're probably not going to like. And he, the implications that Blade is going to hunt her down if she fully turns to a vampire. But she believes that because she's an, a hematologist, she could probably cure herself. So uh, that's when her, her, she deter- she's determined to figure out how she can cure herself of the vampirism. But they decide to let her go. And they basically just dump her off. And like Blade takes her to the middle of the city and just don't dumps her off in the street and he's trying to caution us like just be wary of everybody just look around just just 
get yourself some mace and well actually Whistler gives her a special vampire mace and it that's has garlic and silver in it and he's like just uh be aware of your surroundings be aware of people are following you and she's like but it's in the daytime but she's not aware of the familiars that can freely go out in the day and she's not aware of this weird sunblock that the vampires in this movie wear so that the vampires can go out in the daytime so they go and uh so she goes in her apartment and she has to run in with one of the familiars and the blade shows up again out of nowhere and um and basically he's he's attacking the familiar because he wants that familiar to tell him where deacon frost is so uh that particular familiar was officer krieger played by kevin patrick walls but what i liked about it it's it's another it's another great line so there there are scenes where you see blade go buy stuff and he pays for the stuff with like gold watches and then you see where he gets this stuff from he's like he starts taking off watches and and any jewelry that officer krieger might might have and this is all happening at the doctor's apartment dr jensen is like what are you doing you're robbing him and and blade replies how do you think we fund this organization we're not the march of dimes I love that. They they have stuff like that all throughout this movie. I also like the smart exposition they have in this movie. You're learning about a new lore. So the reason, the main reason for Dr. Karen Johnson, that particular character, because she's human, she has to learn about the world of vampires that Blade is trying to teach her. What Blade and Whistle want her to do is to pack herself up and move out of the city because she's going to be hunted by vampires. And if she becomes a vampire, then she's going to be hunted by Blade. But she's determined that she's going to stick with Blade because she doesn't feel safe anyplace else. So she basically forces a partnership with Blade and Whistler. So through her, we learn about this movie, about the, the lore of this movie. So she's always asking questions. And then that's how we learn about Blade's origins. That's how we learn about how... Uh, vampires work in this particular mythology and it's done you don't get one massive in info dump they kind of uh you know you get a little bit along the way as required by the story and i, I think it's I, I don't mind exposition as much as some other people might but i'm just glad in this movie it's not a massive info dump it's like you, you get it as you need it you, you learn just enough to push the story along and then when you need to learn more you know more and you learn it through her because she's the one asking all the questions um another line that i like is uh when blade says it's open season on all suckheads uh I, that's his derogatory term for vampires that's <laughs> that's really cool so there's another scene where uh they're looking for information and they track down a vampire named pearl pearl is a massively obese vampire it's it's not even it's like he's greater than obese like he's so big that he can't move it's like his body is 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 like it's barely it's it's an amorphous blob it's like the only thing you really recognize are his arms that are sticking out the side of his body he's so massive that you don't even you can't really tell where his legs are it's like huge he's surrounded by 
uh, blood bags. He can't, I guess they come around to feed him. He's basically the archivist for that particular coven of, or brood, or what do you call a group of vampires? Uh, that particular nest of vampires. So there's a scene where they, Blade and the doctor are torturing this vampire with UV light. Like, in doc, the doctor, Dr. Karen is kind of enjoying torturing this vampire with, with the UV light. She'll turn it on and burn him until he gives up more information. And then he'll start to lie. So she'll burn him some more with, to get more information until, or until he starts telling the truth. And it is, that's a fun scene. It's, it's a, it's, you, it's interesting to see her kind of enjoy torturing people as twig, as as sick and twisted as that might sound. So this kind of leads into Blade 2. Because in, in this movie, we we witness or we suppose to witness Whistler's death. And I remember watching Blade 2 and Whistler is back. It's like, how is Whistler back? Whistler is supposed to be dead. So in this movie... The vampires find out where Whistler is. So they they find Blade's hideout and Blade's not there. And so they start beating the crap out of Whistler. Whistler himself is a vampire hunter, but he's kind of semi-retired. So he doesn't actually hunt vampires actively. He Now he just makes weapons for Blade. And every once in a while, he goes and rescue Blade when Blade gets in trouble. But he basically stays behind most of the time. He's old. He, uh, he His body is beaten. So he's not going to be as able to fight vampires as a younger person is. So they, and besides, their vampires are faster and stronger anyway. So they just beat the crap out of Whistler. Um, I forget why. Uh, I guess to get information on where Blade is or just, just to beat him up because that will put him out of commission so that they don't have to worry about Whistler anymore. So Blade comes back and they find Whistler. Well, he finds Whistler, you know, all beaten up, busted and broken. And so Whistler asks for Blade's gun. And the implication is that, you know, Whistler is dying, so he's going to shoot himself. He's not bitten or anything, but he just feels like, you know, he doesn't want to, you can't really bother with hospitals and, and stuff like that. So Whistler, it is implied that Whistler commits suicide using Blade's gun. But when you watch Blade 2, Whistler's back. And I, it always bothered me that Whistler came back in Blade 2. But they don't they don't show Whistler actually pointing a gun to his head and pulling the trigger. They don't show any of that. All they All you have is a gunshot in the background and then... Whistler's hand falling out of side. So that that's how they skated that. They basically they don't say it in Blade 2, but the implication is Whistler didn't actually kill himself and he basically survived the beating that was given to him by all the vampires. So he came back for he came back for Blade 2 and Blade 3. So the main gist of what Deacon Frost is trying to do is that he's He's a half-breed vampire, and he's having a rift with the council, the heads of all the greater vampire families. All of these guys are purebloods, and the implication is that only purebloods can serve on this council. So 
Deacon Frost is restless. He's a younger vampire. He doesn't want to do things the old ways. He just want to do a total conquest of the human race. While the purebloods have basically, they, they're in within humanity through subterfuge. So, so they're controlling like the police force and banks and and large institutions and businesses and they're they infiltrate infiltrate governments, but they prefer to stay hidden. So you know they can just feed off of humans and and live in the shadows and and have some control over the governments and they kind of have a truce with human governments but deacon frost doesn't want to do doesn't want to live like that he just wants to go out and conquer all of humanity you know his argument is that they shouldn't have a truce because these people are their food so he he just wants to take all of them out or subjugate all of them. Obviously, he doesn't want to kill all the humans because then they wouldn't have anything to eat. But he wants to subjugate humans since uh, they he feels that they are, the vampires are the dominant life forms. So he wants to subjugate the humans, you know, use them as cattle or something. So in order to act, enact his plan, he pilfers uh, vampire libraries that he's, for whatever reason, is not supposed to have access to. And he looks and looks for and deciphers ancient texts with the help of a computer, and he's able to find the religious ritual that will enable him to become a vampire god. So even though the vampires are biological, or the the nature of the mythology in this movie is that the the vampires are biological. It kind of slides a little bit into mythology because they do this through this religious ritual because the vampires have their own religion. He's going to basically become a vampire god and then issue in or, or bring forth a kind of vampire apocalypse. He's trying to raise, I guess, bring forth the vampire god to earth and they don't really explain how that comes is supposed to come to pass, but I guess the implication is that the the vampire god will possess whoever creates the ritual and then you know bring forth the the vampire apocalypse or something like that so there there's a lot of action that goes through it's all extremely fabulous. I love the action in this movie. Blade is eventually captured. It's done in a smart way too. I really love. There's this. So there's a scene where, like, after they talk to Pearl, they end up in Vampire Library, and they're looking for more information. This is Blade and uh, the Doctor, and Blade senses somebody running through the library, and he corner. You know, he basically tracks her down. It it gives it gives you the feeling that this is somebody that was trying to run and hide. So he's trying to find the person so that he can basically protect her from whatever she was running from. So he gets her in, uh, so he finds her and he's like, give me your hand. Cause he's like trying to rescue this girl. And then some other vampires show up and then she starts attacking blade. And she's a very good martial artist. <laughs> and she's doing, uh, she has from my estimation, very a very beautiful uh very beautiful kicks and strikes 
that that you might see in in a UFC cage fight or something. But it's it's awesome. Blade Blade is having a hard time defending himself against this this fighter. So it's basically a trap. And um, the other vampires uh, join in, and this is how they capture Blade. I I think I, it's funny. I just saw the movie yesterday, and and I'm already starting to forget scenes from it. But they they capture Blade. And they bring Blade to a vampire temple in the city. And Blade learns that his mother is still alive. So this is a big twist in the movie. Blade mother, Blade has believed his whole life that his mother was killed by a vampire. And his whole crusade was to find a vampire that bit and killed his mother. Because he was raised on the streets. And he was an orphan. And the only reason he knows what his mother's name is and what she looks like is that I guess using his detective skills or with the help of whistlers, he he was able to find out who his mother was and he was able to uh, get a picture of her from a driver's license that he keeps. So when he sees her, he, he recognized her because she hasn't aged since he was born. So, he, he he recognizes the you know her because of the driver's license. So her physical appearance is is that of a woman that's the exact same age as him. And then they got this weird sexual tension between his mother and Blade, it, which is super weird. And it turns out that the vampire that bit his mother was Deacon Frost himself, and his mother and Deacon Frost. Are actually lovers. Like she's fully into, like she's she's changed. She's a vampire. She's a full vampire. She, she's fully into being a vampire, and it's kind of messed up because apparently all the, this entire time with her, because you only barely glimpsed her in an earlier scene in the movie, and so by the time they show the twist, you see her in full, and the basically you understand. You come to the understanding that she knew the whole time that Blade and Deacon Frost had been fighting for years and didn't and and she never revealed herself to blade it's just kind of crazy uh that a mother would behave that way but you know we in real life we have stranger mothers i guess so um so blade is uh as i say blade is captured just put into this it's kind of like a coffin and um, where it's it's a coffin like thing that's, but it's standing up. It's it's a vertical coffin thing, and when it's closed up, it's designed to drain his blood. And that's and his blood because he's a half breed, half vampire, half human. That's the blood that they need for the ritual, and they they also need the members of the family for the ritual. So basically, Deacon Cross is, has everything he needs for this to uh for this ritual to take place to transform him into a god and in the meantime the doctor is thrown into uh it's kind of like a dungeon with uh with a different version of the vampire like when sometimes when people get transformed transformed into vampires they become worse versions of vampires that are so bad that they actually hunt vampires as well as humans so she's and they they're not fully uh 
they're more like zombies than vampires. They're like they they still you know drink blood or whatever, but they 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 don't have. They're like crazy vampires, I guess. And this vampire happens to be the uh, the coroner that that was her former boyfriend. So uh, the coroner, his name is actually Curtis Webb. But anyway, the, the coroner starts to, uh, he's he's acting really weird, obviously. But then he gets around to trying to attack her. She's able to fight him off. And then she's able to climb out of the pit that she was in. So in this way, she uh, goes around to find Blade and rescue him. How, how she does it, how she how she knows how to use, you know, work all the devices that are holding Blade in place. We're not going to talk about that. It, it's, that's not important. The only thing that's important is that she rescued Blade. Now, one of the things that this film does is that it follows almost every vampire trope in every vampire movie you ever saw is that Blade has... Not only is he drained of his own blood, but he hasn't had his serum for a while. So he is extreme. He's weak. He's he's weak from blood loss and not having eaten. So he's done for, essentially. The trope is that this pseudo love interest or the love interest offers herself as a vessel so that Blade can feed upon. Like she says, go ahead, drink my blood. Is This is the only part that I didn't particularly like. But because it's like, oh, they're they're gonna do that trope again. But you know, it's it is what it is. It um but uh the the important thing about this scene is that so he starts to feed on her and it it basically looks like vampire and victim version of, of having sex. It looks like it, it's made to look like sexual contact or, or a sexual act. The, the way they the way they're both moving and the way that blade is sucking on her neck, right? So it's uh most of the other vampires are not feeding this way so the other vampires when they feed it's, it's more like an attack so it's, it's not that they're just poking holes with their fangs in the people they're they they're, they do that and they they allow blood to just drip all over the place and you know they rip out their neck or whatever body part that they happen to be feeding on a uh, very sloppy eater blood all over the place uh with blade he's a very clean eater it's like he's not allowing blood to squash all over the place and he's not uh ripping huge holes in in his victim's neck he's it's a very clean feeding and and it looks all sexual it's made to resemble sex because vampires are the sexiest monsters and there's a lot of like sexual representation is is that the word i'm looking for there's there's a lot of sex associated with vampires and so this film didn't want to skip out on that so that's why we get this scene of blade feeding on his victim the dr karen jensen not exactly his love interest but at the very least his partner in eliminating vampires is basically as close as a love making scene in this movie as as the, you're going to get so that was an interesting scene. I'm not saying it was my favorite scene, but it's it, it was very interesting. So now that you know, after he drinks her blood, he's supercharged. So he goes out. He grabs his gear because the vampires didn't actually, uh, they didn't really dispose of it because, you know, as far as they were concerned, Blade Blade was captured. So he grabs his gear that happens to be nearby, the the temple that they're in. 
Uh, it's underground. It's deep underground, and it's a very tall temple. And Blade is at the top of the temple, and the other vampires are at the bottom of this underground temple. And Blade does he does his dive off of this tall temple, and he does a somersault, and he does a proper superhero landing. I believe this is the very first proper superhero landing in cinema with, you know, and he doesn't land on his knees. He he lands on his legs, but his knees are bent. So it still has that superhero pose. You probably thought that Iron Man was the first superhero to do a superhero landing. And I'm here to tell you that it was Blade. It was done much better <laughs> than, than you saw in Iron Man. It looked absolutely awesome. And then obviously, you know, the fights suit can it continues with this great fight choreography. And this time Dr. Jensen is involved in fighting, but she has some tools, like she has her mace and she has uh oh, she has her serum. Like so the serum that she's able she was able to develop a serum that causes vampire blood to explode. So she's able to to use that. Blade has a bunch of the serum, and and that that that's basically it. She she basically she kind of hits and runs and and hides. You, you don't see much of her during all the commotion. Most all of the vampires are concentrated on Blade, and Blade is basically eliminating all of them. It's a great fight, and then it ends with. But it's really kind of too late because the ritual has already taken place, and Deacon Frost has already gotten the the superpowers of the vampire god he's even faster than blade now they both have swords they're both fighting it's it's all very energetic and dynamic and but in the end blade is still a better fighter and he's able to you know he i don't know what you call it when you cut somebody's limbs off he cuts he cuts off deacon frost one of his arms and then he cuts deacon frost in half and so, and he has his back turn like in an anime. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that later. So he has his back turn like in an anime, like he's done and he expects his villain to fall. And then he realized, he realized that there's something wrong. He turns around. And even though Deacon Frost is in half, you have blood from his torso, the, his bottom torso and legs. Have, it have There's a stream of blood from there to his upper torso and his arm. And then even his arm, there's a stream of blood from his uh, the severed part of his arm and the rest of his arm. And that blood pulls his body back together and he heals instantly. And this is where he realized that he's dealing with something that's brand new, something that's more than a vampire. So he, they continue to fight. And it's like it seems like every time he cuts Deacon, he's just able to use that blood to pull himself back together and heal. So uh, he's not able to, to get an advantage. And then Deacon gets the upper hand. And then he basically has, uh, he has Blade in the kind of hole. But Blade spots uh, his serum. And, and, and his serum has somehow got thrown into one of the upper crevices of this temple. And he sees the serum. Now, Deacon Frost thinks that this is blade serum that he uses for himself to survive so that he doesn't have to have to drink blood. But in reality, it's the serum that the doctor had developed that explodes vampire blood. 
So Blade takes his sword and he throws it up into the crevice and that dislodges dislodges the uh the serum. There's like a bunch of serum. So he's able to push the deacon away and he grabs his uh he cat he catches the, the serum and they're they're basically in hypodermic needles or some kind of need it's like uh automatic auto injection needles. So he throws one at Deacon and it auto injects the serum in. And Deacon is surprised, but he's not it's not like he's fully going to uh like one one of these one of these things aren't going to kill him because he's like he's like a super vampire. And then Blade throws all of these auto injection serums at Deacon and now he's full of them and then his the Deacon's blood starts to boil because the, the blood was a thing that kept pulling him back together. But now the blood itself is being attacked. So the blood starts to collapse and it causes Deacon to explode. And and that's basically how that all ends. So before this fight had had even started, one of the things that had that that had happened is that Blade was running towards Deacon up this ramp. And he has his sword behind him. It was like, oh my God, that looks just like anime. There's a lot of things that I feel like they've taken from anime. I didn't see anything in the trivia that suggested that they had gotten inspiration from anime. But there were a lot of things in this in the fight sequences where I feel like they, they got the inspiration in anime. There's a, a scene where during the Blade Deacon fight where they're sword fighting. And the sword fighting like really fast, and I feel like that's been taken from anime. The the way that Blade cuts somebody and he turns his back, that looks like it was taken from anime. There are a lot of great artistic choices in the fight scenes. It's just it just ha- has me giddy with laughter, and I love the style of this movie and and the style of the fight scenes. So I can just watch this movie just for the fight scenes, and and I'd be satisfied. And then um, one of the best lines uh, in the movie was, I mentioned it in the trivia, but it's, um, so this is when Blade says, some motherfuckers are always trying to skate uphill. And <laughs> what? Or some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And that's that's a beautiful line. And I'll tell you in the trivia how that came about. And then I liked how the, so Blade decides like he doesn't, the the woman has developed the cure for vampirism. She cures herself. She offers it to Blade, but Blade decides that there are other vampires out there. So he's going to put up with being a half-human, half-vampire until he vanquishes all of the vampire. And it kind of closes the way it opens. So like there's a couple and they're like laughing and whatnot. And then um, I guess the man turns out that he's a vampire. And this is in Moscow. So there it's... It's on the streets of Moscow, it's snowing, and it's nighttime. And the next thing you know, um, there's Blade out of nowhere. He's just there, and I, he says something like, "Are you having a nice night, comrade?" or something like that. And and then the movie closes. So it just shows that Blade continues his fight against vampires. And yeah, I just like basically I just love the way that this whole movie kind of flows. It, it flows really nicely. And I'll say it again that the fight choreographers 
choreography is great and then the music that goes along with it it, it perfectly matches the fight scene it's just very well done in this movie stephen norrington knew what he was doing i don't know what happened to him or why uh, a lot of his movies you know didn't uh garner that much more acclaim i hadn't seen like i said i hadn't seen most of his movies or well, i haven't seen half of his movies i'll say that he's only made four movies uh, the other movie is the league of extraordinary gentlemen which had a lot of potential but it was such a bad experience for a lot of actors it, this is the league of extraordinary gentlemen was the movie that made sean connery quit acting sean connery quit acting because he didn't like the process of making the league of extraordinary gentlemen and it probably had a lot to do with Stephen Norrington. And even in Blade, there were times when Norrington couldn't decide on how he wanted to do. And at least according to um, Wesley Snipes, Snipes had, had kind of stepped in and tried to help the actors out. Although there was tension between uh, at least Stephen Dorff and Wesley Snipes in the movie. So that's it. Uh, talking about my favorite parts in the movie and and it's i feel like the whole movie is my favorite part <laughs> but because i kind of went over the whole movie but uh now that we've talked about that let's get to the trivia all right now it's time for the trivia brought to us by imdb Wesley Snipes was interested in doing a movie adaptation of the Black Panther comics when he was offered the project. He said that he was unfamiliar with the Blade comics, seeing more of a connection to the black exploitation heroes of the 1970s. I just approached him as this really cool character where I'd get to do martial arts and wear a leather suit, he said. When David S. Goyer first pitched the idea of doing a Blade movie. The executives at New Line felt there were only three characters who could possibly do the role. Wesley Snipes, Denzel Washington, and Lawrence Fishburne. But in Goyer's mind, Snipes had, was always the perfect choice for the character of Blade. I'm not sure how I would feel about Denzel Washington doing Blade, or if he would even want to do that character. But he can play mean. We we've seen him, we've seen him play a bad guy. So I'm not I, I'm confident that we would have gotten a good blade out of Denzel Washington. Of course, and of course we know that Lawrence Fishburne could do it. I, I think he was he he was in the the Matrix the next year, like after Blade came out. Lawrence Fishburne appeared in the Matrix. So. You could you could basically see Blade in the Matrix through Lawrence Fishburne, so so that's a no brainer. David S. Goyer explained in the DVD commentary that the scene where Karen touches Blade's sword was originally longer, as she went on to discover a weird hybrid infant of some kind floating in a tank. It came with a jump scare, and Goyer says, "quote I think it would have scared the living shit." out of the audience, but New Line felt it was just too horrible, end quote. 
Chris Christopherson's character, Whistler, was created for Blade's cameo on Spider-Man, the animated series, in 1994. He was liked so much by Marvel CEO that he was adopted into the Marvel Universe. That's interesting. I did not know that Whistler started off as an animated character. The scene where Quinn, played by Donald Logue, attacks Karen in the hospital corridor features lots of screaming. But they knew something was wrong when Logue started yelling, too. During the tussle, he fell face first into the hard floor and completely dislodged his jaw. He had broken it in an accident years prior, and opening his mouth too wide and too fast can unhinge it. They were filming in an abandoned hospital, but had to rush to a real one. But I've got this guy who's dressed as a third-degree burn victim, essentially naked, running in with his jaw hanging down. This is a quote from somebody I don't know. While discussing the character of Deacon Frost, Wesley Snipes described him as the kind of guy who ice skate uphill. Stephen Norrington and David S. Goyer loved the phrase so much, they worked it into the film. What's interesting is that that's not how I heard the story. What I heard was that Wesley Snipes was on the phone with somebody, like his agent or a friend of his. Like it was while he was on set, he was on the phone talking to somebody. And David Goyer heard Snipes say something like, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And, and that's where and how they originally heard the phrase. So I don't know which story is true, but that's the one I heard. Anyway, moving right along. Karen was originally going to be played by a white actress, but Wesley Snipes encouraged them to cast a black actress, which I think was the correct decision. I think I also heard that they wanted Blade to be a white character, and they had to convince the studios to play, that it had to be a black actor. But it, I didn't see that in the trivia, but I thought I heard that somewhere. Quinn originally had a much smaller role, but Donald Logue was so funny on set that his character was expanded and he was allowed to ad-lib a good portion of his dialogue. So yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, uh, the script was, you know, obviously you have certain actors and they have a certain talent for dialogue. And, and if you allow them to improvise, it, it could be a vast improvement to the script as written. In the scene where Blade is chased to the subway and the subway train is passing by, all the passengers are cardboard cutouts with the special effects man among them. <laughs> I thought that was clever. In updating the vampire lore, Stephen Norrington and David Escort decided that crosses wouldn't work against vampires, citing, quote, what if a vampire was Jewish? Why would a cross work against him? Yeah, yeah, that's a valid question. I mean, obviously, the, the answer that somebody who writes vampire fiction would probably be that Christianity is, is the religion, is the operating religion. So they would work from the assumption that Christianity was real and the other religions were not real, which is why crosses would work and, and no other religious instrument would, would work. I, I think that's what some how somebody would answer that question. Or 
they might say that we're not just crosses work, uh, a star of David might work or other religious instruments might work or anything that was sufficiently blessed by any person from a practicing religion, any of that would work. That That's another valid answer, I guess. Anyway, when Karen first meets Whistler, Blade can be seen holding a map of New Orleans. This not only implies that the city that they're in, it's an homage to the comic books. Many stories in the Blade series occur in New Orleans. Now, the only problem with this is that in the movie, there's a expansive subway scene. Like, they're, they're underground in an underground subway. And New Orleans does not have, at least in my, to, my, to my knowledge, they don't have a subway system. Uh, at least not one as, you know, significant as the one that we see in a movie. And I always thought this movie was New York City. But now that I think about it, they don't actually say where they are. And you don't see any New York City landmarks. Usually, when, you, uh, when they want to film in New York City, they, they like to show the landmarks like the Twin Towers or the Empire State Building or the Flatteron Building. They'll... Or the Brooklyn Bridge, they'll, the stack, they'll show all the things to let you know that they're in New York City. So even though when I first started the show, I said that this was in New York City, that was because when I watched this movie, that's the impression that I get. But I think when they, they didn't want to name the city, so this is really a, a nameless city in this movie. Stanley originally had a cameo that was ultimately, ultimately cut from the movie. He played one of the cops that came into the blood club during the aftermath and discovered Quinn's body on fire. So that would have been neat. I don't know why they cut that. According to Wesley Snipes and Stephen Dorff, on the commentary, Snipes had thoughts on the scene where Blade and Deacon Frost, and Deacon Frost played by Dorff, face off during the day in the busy street. Quote, the issue with this scene, end quote, involved scheduling realities and Dorrington's uncertainty as to what he wanted. It was one of Dorff's first days, quote, and the guy hadn't had the chance to figure out what his character was, let alone play the dynamics of the scene, end quote. Snipes tried to help, which, quote, was very delicate. End quote. And it paid off. He told Dorf, quote, we need more, end quote. And it finally clicked, resulting in a powerful interaction between the two. Stefan Dorf doesn't disagree, but he does add that it was an interesting day, in part because people like David Fincher were visiting the set. He had also been rehearsing for hours and felt his performance was growing stale. So when Snipes stopped to watch the playback and to remind Dorf that he was a producer and therefore has more say on the film, the, the two grew antagonistic. Quote, the most tense situations on a movie tend to make the best movies, end quote. Um, I'm not sure if all of these quotes are Dorf's quotes or some of them are Wesley Snipes. Or maybe all of them are Snipes quotes. I'm not exactly sure. I probably should have did a, more, a little bit more research on how this uh, this particular bit of trivia was written in uh, in IMDb. 
But anyway, moving right along. The success of this film, especially since it followed the derided Batman and Robin from 1997, is often considered the beginning of the rise of the superhero genre to become dominant in mainstream films. And not only the rise of the superhero genre, but the rise of Marvel Studios. I mentioned earlier that one of the producers was Marvel Entertain, uh, Marvel Enterprises. That's what it was called. But then after this movie, that's when you started to see the Marvel uh, fanfare start to show up. So first it was just, it was, you know, just the red Marvel label. And then after that, you start to see the red Marvel, uh, the red Marvel, the, well, the, the whole logo and the fanfare and, and all of that slowly started being added. So that's, it started with Blade 2, I think. I don't think that the X-Men movie had it because the X-Men came out after Blade and I don't think the Spider-Man movie had it. But but by the time you had Blade 2, that's when you see Marvel start to come to the forefront and eventually uh, Marvel Studios came about and then they were bought by Disney and then the rest is history. But most people agree that it really started all with Blade. The scene where Karen and Deacon are talking about the cure for vampirism initially ran a bit longer and answered the question of how the vampires would feed if everybody was turned into a vampire. They would keep some human alive in giant blood bags to harvest them. The bags can still be seen in a doorway during the scene and later played an integral part of the plot in Blade Trinity from 2004. It was also the underlying plot structure for the movie Daybreakers from 2009. I mean, yeah, you, you just can't turn everybody into a vampire. You're going to have to keep some people around or, or you're going to end up, you know, with vampires eating vampires, I guess, or I don't, I don't know, how, or vampires eating animals. And then, you know, I don't know how all that's going to work. And then obviously you're going to have to have the humans reproduce because you just can't keep them in body bags. So you're going to have to have human farms. It's, it needed to be a whole thing. But anyway. Uh, for the next bit of trivia, this alludes to one of my favorite parts of the film. Blade's car is a 1968 Dodge Charger with various modifications. That is a beautiful vehicle. In the original Marvel comic storyline, the character Blade was English, not American. It's weird because I, I never, I don't think I read a whole bunch of Blade in the comics, but Whenever I did read Blade in the comics, I always read him in my head. He sounded like he had an American accent. So I didn't I didn't know that he was originally created as a British person. Stephen Norrington stated that the cause of the blobulous vampire Pearl's obese size was the creature gaining a lust for infants and children as he loves to eat their hearts. Pearl took four people to perform. One at the head, one on e at each arm, and one operating the feet. He's surrounded by used blood bags and debris, but originally they wanted dead children scattered around as well as seeing Pearl was too big to move around easily and would need easy prey. Pearl was so large that a set had to be built around him. It was about 700 pounds of latex skin that had to be moved with the forklift. So yeah, they went they went all out 
for for Pearl. Uh, I mentioned Pearl was a vampire that they got tortured with the UV light, but yeah, they went all out. Ebony Adams, who is credited as martial arts kid, was a national competitor coming in under Grandmaster Billy Blanks, the Taibo inventor and star of several films such as Hidden Tiger in 1996. She had to be tracked down, according to Wesley Snipes, in a commentary. They have a fight in the library, which was a technique to surprise the audience with an unlikely adversary to bleed. So I talked about this earlier where, you know, they're going through the library. He sees a girl running and he finds her and then she starts attacking him. And like I said, it's a beautiful fight sequence. Michael Morbius was to be used as the main antagonist in an eventual sequel, but the idea was dropped due to the fact that the character rights belong to Spider-Man universe and their movie license was was the property of Sony at the time. As a matter of fact, it's still the property of Sony. And we saw the results of Sony turning Michael Morbius into a movie. The vampire on the rooftop at the alternate ending of Blade is supposed to be Morbius. Now, here's the thing. Uh, let's talk about Morbius for a minute. I, I know that most people didn't like this movie. It, and I saw the movie. It definitely had its problems. It, In my estimate. In my estimation, it it really st- it started off real good. I like I like the beginning and I like the part up to you know the part where he first turns into Morbius, and then you know bits and pieces after that I really liked about Morbius. I liked the special effects. There were a lot of things that I liked about Morbius, but overall the movie was really bad. But here's the thing: there there are those who say that you know Michael Morbius is an obscure character. They shouldn't be making a movie with such an obscure character and at the same time Michael Morbius was uh like how how would that work how would a, a vampire movie work where the vampire is supposed to be the good guy but essentially Michael Morbius as a character is the same character as Blade Michael Morbius isn't actually a full vampire he's kind of like a half vampire half human but his situation is slightly different and we saw in Blade that an obscure character that's half half vampire, half human, and basically an anti-hero, it works. It works in Blade. Blade made it work. And Michael Morbius is essentially a, the same character. He was just this, the character was just sacked with a bad movie. So you just had a similar character in a bad movie. This Michael Morbius is what happens, well, what would have happened if Blade was a bad movie. Or I could say Michael Morbius is what happens when you take an obscure character and you put that obscure character in a bad movie. So it's not there's nothing wrong with the character of Morbius. Morbius could have been a great movie, but you know it was a bad story. Uh, I don't think the script was all that bad, but the the story was bad. The overall story, the it was just bad, and it could have been, and maybe it was the script, but it could have been so much better because it started off pretty good. But it kind of it went sideways and it, and it had a lot of logic problems, so you know, kind of a disappointment. It, it, it we almost got a really good movie. Uh, and um, continuing on this thought, this line of thinking, the origins of Blade in the movie is different than in the uh, in the comics. So in the comics, it's actually Michael Morbius that who bites and creates blade since michael morbius isn't a full vampire himself when he creates blade he basically 
creates uh, another half vampire. So um, that that those are my thoughts on Morbius. Deacon Frost is reimagined as a more Generation X type of character, uh, and in this context, when we're talking about Generation X, we're talking about a a young person, like Generation X in in nineteen nineties. So this is Generation X as as a very young man in his early twenties. His comic book counterpart was an older German accented white haired gentleman that hailed from 1868. Blade himself is also younger, having been born in 1967 instead of 1929. So so that's that's pretty interesting. In 2004 screenwriter David Escoyer revealed to MovieWeb a little known fact that David Fincher got involved with Blade after seven in nineteen ninety five and admits that he helped Goyer develop the script. He was actually going to direct until, for unknown reasons, he didn't end up doing it. A UCLA linguistics professor, Victoria Fromkin, was hired to design a vampire language after Fromkin was creator of the Pac 2's language from the TV series Land of the Lost from 1974. Despite the fact that the vampire language was finally used for two scenes when a vampire elder berates Frost and when Pearl yells about the blood god that later Blade repeats to Frost during their meeting in the city park, although it sounds like Slavic or Hungarian to hint its Eastern European origins as a reference for Transylvania, Fromkin intermixed vaguely Russian and Czech words to create Vampire's language. When Blade is first engaging Frost, he is seen charging up a ramp with his sword out and away from him. This is the correct way to run with a sharp instrument to prevent accidental death by impalement if said instruments were dropped while running. And, and that's brilliant. But when you see it, it looks like anime. I didn't realize that that was a real technique used to run with the sword, but it's it's fun because it looks like anime. Blade first appears in the comic The Tomb of Dracula, number 10, in July 1973. I think I, I said something about 1960s earlier, but now I see it's, it's 1973. But again, still, uh, he had an afro. In, in the 1970s. So that's it for the trivia. And up next, we see what the critics thought. And now, we talk about what the critics thought. The critics gave it a 57%, and the audience score was 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. You can see it's, it's a huge mismatch there. <laughs> and on IMDb reviews, it got a 7.1 out of 10, which sort of matches the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So the first credit, Deborah Hornblow from the Hartford Current wrote, A futuristic gore fest that spills oceans of sticky stage blood but misses in a rather anemic attempt to pierce the heart. Now, I would say I must strongly disagree with this statement. Joe Barry from Radio Times wrote, This is far-fetched stuff indeed, but Snipes looks great in leather. It's snappily paced, 
And the performances are perfectly tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I totally agree. David Kerr from the New York Daily News wrote, This is an engagingly simple, good-hearted film with just enough darkness around the edges to give contrast and relief to its glowingly benign view of human nature. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. They, they didn't have that weird dead baby tank scene. So, yeah, I guess you could describe it as good-natured. <laughs> Gene Seymour of the Los Angeles Times wrote, Such techno-action may give Blade enough power for a sequel, but one is left wondering whether there's any room for its central character to sustain interest beyond this flashy debut. So he's not really saying in this statement whether or not he liked the movie. He describes it as flashy, but uh, he's suggesting that Blade is kind of like one-dimensional in this movie, and that's probably true. It's not like he had a character arc where he grew uh, or, or he changed from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, that he's the same person at the end of the movie as he was in the beginning. Not much character growth. So, uh, and, you know, he's wondering if such a character can can survive a sequel. It's like, well, let's not worry about the sequel right now. Let's let's just worry about this particular movie, right? <laughs> just, just we're getting ahead of ourselves already thinking about a sequel. But he's, I think he's thinking like a, a crit, not like a critic, but you know, somebody who knows how Hollywood works. So he knows that you know the sequel, uh, that a sequel is likely because the first movie made so much money. Finally, Gene Sisko from Chicago Tribune. I hadn't uh, talked, uh, used one of his critiques in a long time. So he wrote, what is unusual about the film is the way it combines high-tech violence and the more up-close and personal violence of vampires. These characters and the aggressive way they attack each other justify all the film's considerable noise. And that is true. That, that's a really interesting observation. And I believe it is a very good one. So that's it for what the critics thought. Finally, Blade is as of this recording available anywhere that you can rent or buy movies. That's it for today. Next week, we have a chat about another great movie from yesteryear with the two great hosts, Rod and Karen, of the excellent cultural podcast, The Black Eye Who Tips. The movie that we're going to talk about is Die Hard with a Vengeance. As always, follow us on Twitter or TikTok at Backlick Cinema or Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast. And if you're on Mastodon at Backlick Cinema at MSTDN.party. Don't forget that you can contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com. One last time, if you like this show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, Podchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your families. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding.